Good morning. Boy, am I glad to see you. Thank you. Nice to be seen. I was supposed to be up here last week. I wrote a sermon, finished it by Wednesday, and then discovered that when you go through chemotherapy, little bitty viruses uh, do a number on you. So I get a cold. Cold turns into bronchitis. I get the medicines. This is how this works. Three or four days, I'm better. But when you don't have an immune system that's fighting alongside the drugs, it kind of so knocked me out for almost 10. And uh, I was as surprised as anything. But I thought Phil did a great job with the sermon I wrote, didn't you? <laughs> no, his message was he, he made what I wrote tons better. And uh, he did such a great job on it. I get to uh, now lead us today. And I'm happy to do so. If you are visiting, <laughs> why? Uh, you came out in this incredible snow. Thank you so much. And incidentally, can we just say thanks to our operations team, how they got this place ready to go. Just amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, here we go. I have the opportunity to open God's Word to you. And we're a Bible church, which means uh, we really, really take Scripture seriously. And we try to relate what we believe the Scriptures are saying to us today. And I look forward to that. Now, I'm going to start this way. My wife and I have a favorite show. And Marie's sitting down here in the front row right next to me. We just celebrated our 39th anniversary last week. Yeah. And one of our favorite things to do is we, we like to watch this Netflix series, which is entitled The Crown. Are any of you watching The Crown? Okay. Really good. It's the story of Elizabeth when she becomes queen over the British Commonwealth in 1952. She was 26 years old. And it really gives you insight into the whole royal deal, the whole monarchy thing. But here's the issue. When the, when the show comes on, you see this incredible crown. It's the crown jewels. And so what they're communicating to you is, here is wealth. Here is power. Here is notoriety. Um, maybe one of the richest people on the planet is Queen Elizabeth. And jurisdiction over all of this world. She's 26, trying to manage it. Her dad was dying of cancer. The last thing he wanted in his life what is that his 26-year-old daughter would become queen. Why? Because being a queen is no fun. Being a royal is no fun. The, the, the show shows you what somebody in that position must go through. Uh, disappointments. Uh, arguing with parliament. Dealing with Churchill. Her mother still trying to run things from the side. Her sister errant, and she has to do hard things even within her family to represent and serve the empire. What you come away with is that's not a life that anyone would ever want to do. And so the juxtaposition of the crown and the crown jewels compared to the life, get me now, of deep sacrifice that she's called to, is stunning. Now, here's what I do with that. Guess what? When we come 
to live and know Jesus Christ. Incidentally, three weeks ago, 45 of you began relationships with Jesus Christ. We're just absolutely thrilled about that. I have good news to tell you. You became a royal at that very moment. Did you know that? 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may, why? Declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are the royals now with a special purpose, a holy nation. In fact, uh, I put it this way. We've got a, a quote up there for you. We, if we are in Jesus Christ, are a royal, holy priesthood. Now notice, Elizabeth's not a priest. She's royal. She's above all. But we are also priests. What do priests do? They sacrifice. And Peter tells us that in our royalness, we sacrifice our lives for the world. Wow. Not a whole lot different than what Elizabeth goes through. Today I'm going to hit on two big sacrifices that God's royals are called to. One submission to suffering submission and suffering being a royal doesn't mean wearing a crown being a royal doesn't mean you're above others being a royal means that you are a sacrificial offering to God in this world so that other people can come to his marvelous light that's the big theme for today all right, so uh, suffering and submission. Now, last week, Phil did a great job with us on this passage, and I want to do some reading now. So please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, and where I'm logging in today is in verses 19 through chapter 3 and verse 7. This is the text that I've been asked to communicate. Starting in verse 19. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Incidentally, you're not going to like that when I teach on that in a little while. You're not going to like it. He committed no sin, verse 22. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, chapter 3, 1 through 7. Wives, in the same way, 
Submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them don't believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and the reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles, the wearing of gold jewelry, or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet, kind spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. This is the way the holy women of old in the past put their hope in God and how they used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Verse 7, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Okay? Now, two big ideas there. One is this notion of unjust suffering and Jesus as unjust sufferer and what it means to us. The other big idea, and the one I'm going to deal with first, is chapter 3, 1 through 7. And that's the whole thing of the family system. Now, if you were here last week, you heard through Phil, through the Scriptures, that this notion of submission is one of the greatest ways we display our lives to the world through submission. Uh, let's look again at 1 Peter 2.12 because it's kind of a founding passage for this thing. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What does this mean? It means that our lives are on display. And, and as I've written it like this, the gospel is not only what you say, it's what you display through your life. It's not just what you say. It's what you display. And the controlling idea is that God's people being submissive is how we are on display. To some of us, that doesn't make sense. No, 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 no. Let's not do this submit thing. Let, let, let's not get into coming under authority, submitting voluntarily. And last week we saw that this is to apply first to our relationship with civil government. Remember? Honor the emperor. Submit to governing authorities. Secondly, it talked about the, the workplace. Rome at this time was a nation state of servant slaves. 60 million servant slaves. The whole empire ran on it. And Peter says, if you're a follower of Jesus, submit to your master. Now, for us, we don't have that, so it's more how we live as employees, how we live as employers. But again, the theme was the way you display Jesus is through submission, placing yourself willingly under. Ponder that in your life groups this week. What does that mean for you in the workplace? What does that mean for you 
as you think of government. And now, chapter 3, 1 through 7, what does it mean in the married household? All right, so let me spend just a couple of minutes on that. 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7. All right, notice it starts by saying, wives in the same way submit. In the same way that we've been called to submit to civil authority, in the same way that we've been called to submit in the workplace, so too in the household. Same word, same calling, same way. But why? Verse 2. So that husbands who haven't discovered God life yet will begin to believe, not because of your words, wives, but because of your life. They'll be won by the behavior of their wives when they see purity and they see reverence in your lives. The inner person. And then he goes in verse 3, your beauty shouldn't come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles, wearing of gold jewelry, or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the, and I love verse 4, the unfading beauty. Notice that descriptor, ladies, unfading beauty. Not just when you're 25, but when you're 75. The unfading beauty of a gentle, quiet, kind spirit. Eugene Peterson, in his translation in the message, says at this point, your husbands will be captivated by your inward beauty, drawn to God as they are drawn to you. It's beautiful stuff that's there. Now this whole thing of hair and clothing. And by the way, I've learned a lot about just nail color. Uh, from m my wife and our two daughters that, that I've helped raise. I, I feel sorry for you. The amount of time to, to, to if you will, get yourself presentable outwardly uh, and, and the cultural pressure for it, we're, we're right in the middle of the Emmys, the Frosties, the, uh, the, uh, the Grammys, the Grandpas, all of those things are going on. And I feel so sorry for those ladies when they're walking that red carpet. They can barely move. I am beautiful. Don't touch me. <laughs> and, 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 and I just go, yeah, you really are. But a whole lot more inside than outside. So, so Peter's not saying don't care about what you look like. He's just saying don't obsess. Because the real beauty comes from the inside. The more you come to know Jesus Christ, the more you start looking like him, and the more you start looking like him, the more beautiful you become. Right? So that's what this whole thing's about there. So this notion of placing yourself willingly under authority to your husband, it's not that you become a slave. It's that through that, through kindness, through attention to your husband, he begins to see the beauty that is there that only Jesus can bring. Now, I do want to say this. Husbands don't get off the hook here. And this I found interesting because as of last week, when we're talking about submission, placing ourselves under to civil authority, there's no mention of what those that are in power are to act like. 
right? It doesn't say, hey, those of you who are under the tyranny of Rome, where Nero lights the Roman sky with the burning bodies of Christians, submit. He doesn't then say, and Nero, get your act together. Start being human. There's no mention of what the power are to do. Same thing with the marketplace one. Submit yourself, servants and slaves, to those in authority. And it, it doesn't then say, but those of you who are in authority, you start acting right. You start treating people nobly. It doesn't do that. But on the one of marriage, it does. And I'm glad of that because of the sacredness of the marital institution, the intimacy of it, the fragility of it. I'm glad he puts in verse 7 after he does 1 through 6, and he says, and you husbands, you got to get this right. In the same way, you are to be considerate as you live with your wives. You are to honor them. You are to respect them. You are to adore them. And then it has this thing about, because you're a weaker vessel. How many of you ladies like that? I know you don't. And it's really just talking about physicality. In an agrarian culture, of course, women weren't as strong generally as, as men. And, and you don't carry the water, men. That sort of thing is what's going on here. You're co-heirs of Jesus Christ. And he ends it by saying, listen, men, your wives are royal, holy priests. You treat them like that. So it's kind of a mutual submission thing that's going on there. Right? Now, you may still not like that. And, and I don't blame some of you ladies and some of you men, especially in the world we are living in now when every day in the news we are hearing about gargantuan, verbal, physical, and sexual abuse of women. And that should make us mad. And every man who knows Jesus Christ should be fighting against that with every cord in his body. We are not to break the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. We are not to break the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And when the world does things like that, Christians should rise up. But in the normal, <laughs> normal, I almost said normal marriage. Not sure there is such a thing. But in the normal state of marital life, this submission and consideration, this submit and adore from the men to the women, creates a harmony of beauty that the world starts to take notice of. That the world starts to take notice of. That's what this is about. Sorry if you still don't like it, but it's going to get worse. <laughs> I have good news today. Now, what's behind all this submission? Civil authority, workplace, and the household. What's behind it, once again, is there's something about the living under authority that displays the life of Christ in us. 
And here's why. Verses 19 through 25. You've given me the privilege of going ahead. Now I'm coming back to the crux of the whole thing. Look with me, if you will, right at verse 20. Because verse 20 uses the example of servant-slave and submission. And then it says this, verse 20. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. So using the employer-slave owner uh, idea, he says, now this submission, (laughs) this submission needs to happen even when you don't deserve it to be beaten. That's awful to think about. Why in the world would God want anyone to suffer unjustly? You're going to hear today why God wants you to suffer unjustly. Why he does. Now, suffering comes from a lot of things, right? My suffering in the world is usually because I've blown it somewhere. Marie and I get in a tiff, and I am, yeah, I was bombastic yesterday. Marie wanted to go out and snow blow, and I can't really do it right now, but that's my job. And she said, I'm going to run the snowblower. And I, I essentially, harshly said, only if you start it this way, because this is the only way it will start. I'll go out there and help you. <laughs> and and she, was, she, she realized that this was an attack on my masculinity. I was stupid. <laughs> she was kind. <laughs> and she just gently kind of said, okay, honey. <laughs> she goes out. She's out there for two minutes. I'm getting my boots on because I'm the only one that knows how to snark snowboard. And she comes back in. She says, it's only an inch or two. I think I'll just shovel. I go, Okay. All right, so, so, you know, we suffer because we sin. Whatever you reap, you'll sow, right? Okay. We also suffer in this world just because the world's kind of wacky. And you're wacky, and I'm wacky, and we're all wacky, and you put all that wackiness together, and there's a lot of mistakes. You know, I, I'm backing out of my driveway a few years ago, rushing to a meeting that I'm supposed to speak at. And I didn't realize that Marie's car was also in the driveway as I backed out quickly. And so, subsequently, I didn't make it to the meeting I was speaking at, and I had two cars that were now wrecked. Was that sin on my part? Well, maybe. Thou shalt do more than look in the rearview mirror. Thou shalt turn around and look. I, I, I get all that. But by and large, it's just a mistake. And we suffer because we're all wacky and we make mistakes. But there's a third form of suffering. And that's what this text is talking about. That's what this text is calling us to. And it's called unjust suffering. Look at verse 21 again. To this you were called. Can I say that again? To this unjust suffering you were called called. All of you who know and love Jesus, the will of God for you 
is unjust suffering. I'm sorry. I wish that wasn't part of what it takes to be royals. But it is. And in all of our attempts to avoid suffering whenever we can, we, we forget that God literally desires unjust suffering in his people to display his provision and his goodness to the world. It goes on. It says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Let me put those two ideas together. To this unjust suffering you were called, follow him in his steps of unjustly suffering. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. You say, well, gosh, why? Because the world watches. The world watches how we submit and the world watches how we suffer. And it's part of our great witness. The gospel is not only what you say, it's what you display. And Christians who walk with God in unjust suffering are some of the most beautiful humans on the planet. Listen to this quote from F.B. Meyer, wonderful expositor of the early 20th century. Only one action will have the power to awaken the world to God other than our beauty and goodness on display. And it is how we live in our sufferings. Jesus, it says, is our model. He was the example. End of 21. Look at this text from Hebrews 5, 7 as we ponder the unjust suffering of Jesus Christ. During Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Kind of destroys the notion of Jesus just kind of getting along and always being in charge and everything going his way. Constant tears, constant suffering, constant crying out to God. This is what Jesus Christ did. He is our model. This week, a friend of mine called uh, um, the mentor of my life, a man named Leighton Ford, and he's just checking in how I'm doing. And then we just talked about what we were learning from God. And he said, man, this week, Lon, I, I just got kind of blasted by a notion. Listen to this, everybody. I, I got to do it kind of quickly because of our time, but it's, it's riveting, this truth. There was a difference in Jesus prior to when Peter says he is the son of the living God, Matthew 16, and what happens afterwards. Prior to his revelation as the son of the living God, the ultimate royal, remember, he, uh, he says to his disciples, who do the uh, people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, right. Now, let me tell you something. I'm going to suffer from this point on. Prior to that, Jesus was the actor. Jesus was the activator. He flung the stars into space. He gives them by name. The whole universe holds together under his power. He heals the sick. He feeds the poor. He raises the dead. But after that revelation of who he is, it turns. And Jesus moves from the actor of good to the passive 
receiver of sorrow. It's one of the most stunning notions I've had in my life in the last decade. That part of the suffering of Jesus was letting go of being in charge and letting life come at him. He submits. Right after Peter declares who he is, Jesus says, right, now here's what's going to happen. I will be forced to go to Jerusalem. I will be forced to suffer many things at the, at, from power. I will be killed. He moves from active to passive. He moves from victor to victim. And a part of his great sorrows, you guys, is that year or year and a half, he wasn't in charge anymore. See, what happens with unjust suffering is something happens and you're not in charge anymore. Jesus would be denied. He would be lied about. He would be verbally, physically abused. He would be abandoned by his friends. He would be murdered on a cross. And he willingly moved from victor to victim of unjust suffering. He's our model. It's really hard to get your arms around that, that God is the sovereign God over all suffering, and yet, as Tim Keller says, he makes himself vulnerable to suffering. Why? Why? Because he'll save the world through that. That's what it says when we get to verse 24. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And here it is. Many of you know this line. It's one of the most wonderful in the whole Bible. By his wounds. We get healed. By his willingness to become victim and endure, it will result in God changing everything because of what he does, bearing our sins. Could there be any more unjust suffering than that, that Jesus would take upon himself Lon Allison's sins, Bob's sins, Marie's sins, Gary's sins, Dave's sins, Genie's sins, they all came upon him. And through that, he would die. It would kill him. But through that, he would rise. And it will save us. Now, watch me now. This is freaky. We are are called to unjust suffering as he took on unjust suffering. There's four passages in the Bible that, that hit on this, and I wish I can't do anything with them today, and I don't understand them very well, but the more I'm suffering now, because disease, that's unjust suffering, right? I, I guarantee you I'll know more about this concept in six months than I know now. But we 
now watch me, are to carry out the sufferings of Christ. In other words, we carry them on. You say, no, 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 no. Don't think for a minute that anything that Lon does in, in, in unjustly suffering is going to result in, in the atonement of Christ for forgiveness of sins. Only Jesus' work could do that. But as the work of Jesus receiving that suffering results in our being redeemed, so too as we, his royal, holy priesthood, step in to whatever sufferings God has for us, we are on display with what his redemption means in our lives. It's a lot more than what I say. It's what I display. And when Christians suffer unjustly and people see that God is with them and that he provides for them, they are stunned with the goodness of God. So I, I put it in a, this here. God's suffering is the only suffering that saves us. But our, our suffering displays what being saved looks like. So, big point. Royal, holy priests sacrifice through submission and unjust suffering to display the goodness of God to the world. Are you willing? <laughs> Even if you're not willing, it's going to happen. Nobody gets out of this thing. Right? Right, Dave? <laughs> we just don't get out of it. You, you're going to suffer unjustly. It might be disease, it might be a tsunami, it might be your best friend betraying you, it might be getting fired, it might be a marriage breaking, and it'll be various things throughout your whole life. I'm just saying, this is the will of God for you. I, I'm getting just a touch of it, and I hope this isn't awful, but now that I've had this uh, diagnosis for a couple of months, and... Uh, I'm learning what it is to just have an invader come in and start to take charge of your body. Uh, it, it's caused me to think a lot. And, and, and as I let people know what's going on here in our church, Facebook, all that sort of thing. Um, and since I've had a background not only being here but in other parts of church service throughout the world, I'm getting letters from friends from high school. That's 50 years ago in California. One of my casual acquaintances wrote yesterday. He lives out here, so people in California who have heard about the God guy <laughs> now having what could be terminal cancer, how, how's Lonnie doing? And so Kurt writes me, and he says, people are wondering how you're doing. And I love Kurt. He, he's a great guy, and he, and he loves Porsches, and I love Porsches. You weren't expecting that, were you? And so he writes, I said, I, you know, let people know I'm, I'm doing well. God is with me in this thing. And, and I said, and by the way, Kurt, this spring, I understand you just got a new 911. I'd love to go for a ride. And he, and he writes back, he says, you can go for as many rides as you want, man. 
the last couple of years, you've helped me find life and find God again. And I started to realize, oh yeah, and then I got asked to sing this song at a denominational annual meeting for a denomination a couple weeks ago, and it was a song about vulnerability and stuff. Guys, I'm not a very good singer, but 38,000 people have viewed this thing. And I'm realizing my life is on display. And more is being done through the display than all the evangelistic words Lon earned a doctorate on to learn to say right. It's the same for all of us is where I'm going. Embrace submission. Embrace unjust suffering. Because then... You're a companion with Jesus, and then you display him to the world. I I close with this. There's a sign on the Hoover Dam outside of Las Vegas. It was built 1930, 1935. 92 people died building that dam. And on the plaque, it simply has this line. It says this. They died to make the desert bloom. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are dying under unjust suffering. And God's going to use it to make the world bloom. That's what royals do. Pray with me. And so, Father, unto you, we commit the words of the text and the interpretation of them that you would bring us truth for each of our lives wherever we are struggling with submission and unjust suffering. And, Lord, give my beautiful friends here hope. You're not only with us in it, you have ordained it. In Jesus' name, amen.